A man who was obviously drunk flopped into a seat on a bus next to a priest. Man, that's a great way to start out a joke, isn't it? That's a classic line. Oh, man. No, I'm just kidding. The man's shirt was stained. His clothes were messy. He had a distinct odor, and there was a half-empty bottle of hooch sticking out of his ripped pocket of his coat. He opened his newspaper, and he began reading. Needless to say, the priest became uncomfortable with the smell and the appearance of this guy and just kind of scooted over a little bit and tried to look out the window. But after a few uh, minutes, this man kind of nudged the priest and, and said, Say, Father, what causes arthritis? Well, the priest was assuming that this man was asking out of his inebriated condition and he was annoyed already and, and so he just responded with the, the, out, of, out of that annoyance and he said, Mr. Arthritis is caused by loose living, being with cheap women, too much alcohol and contempt for your fellow man. Well, I'll be, (laughs) the drunk muttered and returned to his newspaper. Immediately, the priest felt guilty for what he had said and how he just kind of let that fly and, and he didn't mean to be so, so, so rude. And so, so he, he immediately said, I'm sorry, sir. I, I apologize. I, I, I just having a bad day today and, and I didn't, didn't mean to be rude. Please, please forgive me. How long have you had arthritis? And the man said, well, I don't, Reverend, but I was just reading here that the Pope does. Where's he going with this, they said. No, whether it's the Pope or the pastor or just regular church-going folk, there's an expectation that Christians, that followers of God are going to be good, right? We're going to do good things. We're supposed to be avoiding sin and doing good. I wish I had a dollar for every time someone changed the way they were speaking, their, 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 uh, the, the, the language they were using uh, when they found out what I did for a living. Oh, oh well, i got to be good because I'm around somebody that's supposed to be good, right? Uh, there's just an expectation that people who follow Jesus are going to st- uh, stop doing bad things and, 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 and not be sinful in some way. Uh, they might even say that, that, that we should be holy in some way. But what does that mean, and, and is it really even possible? Today, we're, we're back in our Frequently Asked Questions series, and, and I want to look deeper into this whole idea, this concept, uh, this lifestyle of holiness, living a godly life, avoiding sin. Well... How do we even define holiness, though? We've got to figure that out. And what is really a sin? We've got to figure that out. And over the years, churches and denominations and pastors have defined being holy in a lot of different ways. Usually it involves some kind of list to follow, right? Some would say that we've become more lax over time, that we're succumbing to the influence of our culture. They might say that holiness is all about following these church rules, so to speak, but then the rules change from church to church and time to time. And the rules almost always involve what I can't do. Don't do this, 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 right? One of the questions one of you asked on the, on the cards a couple of months ago as we were getting ready for this series was why, uh, why people seem to redefine holiness today. So I want us to start, uh, it's been a couple weeks, uh, maybe you've missed the first couple in this series, so I want to review again the Christian worldview and where we're going to kind of be basing our answers um, on uh, in this series. Uh, 
how, how God has laid things out and how we look at the world. And so that's why we've got these, uh, these things up here. And, um, just for review, there will be a test uh, in a couple of weeks because we've gone over this so much, okay? But just a reminder. So a Christian worldview is God-centered. God created everything and he created, uh, people specifically for a relationship with him. Sin entered into the world. Uh, you've uh, probably heard about the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, where Adam and Eve sinned. And, and when they did, they broke uh, the, the only command that God had given them. And in that, they broke the relationship with God. And, and it brought pain and suffering and uh, death and many consequences to sin. So, because there was a break in that relationship, God knew that we needed a savior, uh, to be saved from the consequences of sin, and even more specifically, to be saved from the, the separation that was now between God and humanity, and so he sent Jesus. And so Jesus, as we celebrated in communion today, Jesus uh, lived a perfect life, uh, died on the cross, and was raised from the dead in order to be our savior and to save us from sin, to restore the relationship with God. So heaven then is our home, which means that this earth is just temporary. And so so we're we're kind of on vacation so to speak. Sometimes it feels more like vacation than others, I suppose, as we're living life these days, but but however many years we live on this earth, it's just temporary compared to the eternity that we will spend in heaven. Uh if we have received Jesus as our savior and our relationship with God is restored, then heaven is our home and our purpose in this life then is to be holy as God makes us holy. God, our Father, answers our questions. Um, It's his standards that we go by, and so it's a God life, and we follow his rules, his order, his standards. The Christian worldview. Again, very quick, very, uh, we could spend the next six months talking about the intricacies of all that, but that's just the highlights. Over here, we've got the non-Christian worldview, which kind of goes against pretty much all of that. So there's, it's me-centered, there's no God, uh, so there wasn't a creation, everything just happened. No sin, I'm just making up my own morality, I, I'm just going to do what I want. So there's no need for a savior because there's no sin, because there's no God to have a relationship with anyway. Uh, so earth is our home, this life that we live here, this uh, 70, 80, 90, 100, 120 years, however long that you're going to live life, this is just, this is our home, this is it. And so we've got to live it for all it's worth because earth is our home. And so my purpose is to be happy. And so I want to do everything I can in order to be happy. And my, the choices that I make are going to flow through, well, does this make me happy? And so that means that our feelings, not our father, but our feelings answer our questions. And so if, if I've got a question, what do I do? How do I, then it goes through, well, how does that make me feel? What do I feel like doing? It does this make me happy? This is my life following my rules. So a Christian worldview, non-Christian worldview, of course, as I've said uh, in uh, weeks past, most of us end up somewhere in the middle here uh, with what I've called smorgasbord Christianity, which is just a fun way to say that it's kind of the buffet style, and, uh, and I'm going to pick and choose what I want to put on my plate, what I want to put on my spiritual uh, Christian plate, and I'm going to have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, I'll have a little bit from over here and a little bit from over here, and I might even make up some in the middle, and so I can, I, I'm in charge of that though, right? I believe what I want to believe, uh, I'm in charge, I can make my own decisions, that's a problem for a lot of reasons, today I'd like to apply that to our desire to be good people, to be holy, right? Most people want to be good. Uh, yeah, I want to be a good person. We don't, we don't uh, get up in the morning and say, I want to be the worst person I can be today. 
Maybe some of you do, but we're praying for you. Um, most of us, I mean, we, we, we want to be good, but the, then the, the, it all kind of comes down into the details of our definitions of what does that mean? What does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be holy? What is the standard that I'm measuring things by? Story is told of a man who rushed into a railroad station one morning, breathlessly asked the ticket agent, when does the 801 train leave? And the agent said, at 8.01, sir. And he said, oh, I, I know, but, 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 but my watch says 7.59 and the, the town clock says 7.57, but your train station clock says 8.04. Which one am I supposed to go by? And the agent said, well, you can go by any clock you wish, but you can't go by the 8.01 train because it's already left. <laughs> he missed the train because he wasn't sure of the standard that he needed to follow. Which clock? Another story is told about a, a little boy who came running to his mother and said, Mother, I am nine feet tall. And she said, well, son, that's, that's great, but I, I think maybe you're not quite nine feet tall. What makes you think that you're nine feet tall? And he said, no, I, I'm nine feet tall. I measured myself. And she said, well, tell me about it. How did you measure yourself? And she said, he said, well, I, I took off my shoe and I measured myself with my shoe. It's the same size as my foot. And so I am nine feet tall. Another story goes of an accountant who answered an, an ad for a, a job with, a, with an accounting firm and, and he thought the interview went pretty well, but the last question kind of threw him. He was all nervous and everything and, and uh, was thinking about all these other answers and, and different things and, and was, was on his way out and they said, oh, just one more question. Uh, what is three times seven? And he, uh, 22, he blurted out and then he walked out the door. He pulled out his calculator and for those of you who aren't quick on your math, facts he figured out he was wrong and so he went down the street and was was filling out other applications and sending his resume other places but about a week later he got a call and was offered a position at this at this accounting firm when he when he came the 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 next day to to start the job he asked the the chairman who had interviewed him why he had received the position uh when he had answered the question wrong and the guy said well uh, of all the applicants you were the closest he said So whether the clock is at, whether it's the clock at the train station or how long a foot is or the answer to a math problem, we have to rely on objective standards in order to get accurate information on truth, right? I can't just make things up. I can't just say, well, a foot is this long or I'm going to go by my clock no matter what your clock says and you've got to, uh, uh, we've just got to figure it out that way. I'm just going to uh, answer math questions the way I want. There's got to be this objective standard for truth. And so that applies to morality as well, right? I can't just determine for myself what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, what is holy, what is sinful, Arbitrary holiness is no holiness at all. We must follow a standard, and that standard, according to our Christian worldview, has to be God's standard. So remember, our purpose in life is to be holy. It's not God's job to make me happy. 
but to make me holy. We talked about that as we talked about uh, why do bad things happen in life and sometimes uh, things happen and and it doesn't make us happy at all and it's it's awful, but God's got a plan somewhere in there and he works all things together for our good and through the process of walking through some difficult days, we end up uh, being more and more holy. And so God's purpose, God's ultimate purpose for your life isn't just happiness, it's holiness. If we pursue what we think will make us happy, we're going to end up empty and we end up with arbitrary subjective views of right and wrong because we're deciding morals based on what feels good. What what do I feel like doing? What's going to make me happy today? And those things change. I make the standards, but, but they change as my feelings change. Pursuing holiness, not happiness, bases our morality on God's unchanging standards. And in the end, it leads to happiness, right? But we go by way of holiness. And we have much more joy and happiness than we ever would have had we just pursued the fleeting happiness, the arbitrary happiness that we we thought we wanted. Uh, we're going to look at several different scriptures today, but primarily I, w- I want to uh, come at this from a couple of letters toward the end of the uh, the end of your Bible uh, from from a guy named Peter. Uh, he was uh, kind of one of the number one uh, disciples in the inner circle. Peter, James, and John walking around with Jesus, and then he uh, he was a leader of the of the church there after Jesus went back to heaven, and he wrote these letters, First and Second Peter primarily to the Jewish uh, Christians. And, and throughout these letters, I think it talks a lot about this holiness thing. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16 gets us started. He says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Christ Jesus is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. In the second chapter, verse 11, uh, Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Uh, Just real quick, foreigners and exiles, Peter knew that that heaven was his home. It wasn't earth. He's just a foreigner. He's an exile here in this world. And so we need to abstain from, he says, the sinful desires that war against our soul. Uh, uh, Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Peter says, uh, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body... Arm yourself also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God, avoiding sin and following the will of God, holiness. So there's an expectation, Peter has an expectation here for the church that that, that we will avoid sin if we're going to follow God. So I guess the first question we need to ask in this whole uh, realm of is it possible to uh, to be holy, uh, we have to ask, well, how do I know if something is a sin? If I'm supposed to avoid sin, how do I know if something is a sin? I'm sure we could come up with a long list of sins this morning. That'd be a fun thing to do on a Sunday morning, wouldn't it? Get a whole big list of sins. We'd probably agree on most of those things. Uh, we'd probably disagree on some of them. Uh, there are probably some things that, that I would avoid and you'd say, I don't know, I don't really have a problem with that. There are other things that, that, that maybe I'd not have a problem with and you would say, I don't know, I don't really do that. There are sins of commission, bad things that I do. 
There are sins of omission, good things that I don't do. We could talk about sin all day long. So, But how do I know if something is sinful? Well, we got to come back to the standard, not just what I think is sinful or what feels like sin, I guess. The short answer, how do I know if something is sinful? If God calls it a sin, it's sin. Let's pray and go home. That makes sense, right? If God calls it a sin, it's sin. Uh, that's the answer. Uh, God is our Father. He is the authority. He sets the standard. Well, the follow-up question naturally would come, well, how do I know if God says it? I mean, I can, I can say that God says it, or somebody can tell me that God said it, but, but how do I know if God says it? Well, a, a few things, and you see them up there on the screen. It's in the Bible. We can pray about it. We can spend time with the church, at the church, with the people of the church, Sometimes we spend a lot of time over here or we listen to the culture that we're in and people talk and, and we go, ah, you know, yeah, that, you can kind of make a good point. But we're not spending time trying to find out what God's standard of holiness is. There's a Bible. It's a lot of, a lot of pages. There's a lot of stuff there. God has given it to us for a purpose, primarily to make us holy and to keep us in that relationship with him. If we're not spending time reading his word, the Bible, if we're not studying scripture, if we're not diving into that uh, over and over and over again, uh, daily, at least daily, multiple times a day, if we're not spending time soaking ourselves in scripture, we can just make up whatever sin we want to make up, or we just hear something somewhere... (laughs) It's in the Bible. As you read the Bible, the Holy Spirit uh, and and prayer just goes right along with that. And you you read and you study and you say, God, what is this saying? And and I don't know about you, but there have been many, many times as I open the Bible and I'm reading and all of a sudden something just kind of hits me between the eyes and I'm like, ooh, whoops. Now I know the truth and this is where I'm living. Either I'm going to ignore the truth and do what I want to do or I've got to align myself with the standard of God because I've found, and so the Holy Spirit, one of the big things that the Holy Spirit does as we pray, as we spend time in God's word, is he convicts us of sin, not to zap us, not to say, hi, I caught you, I told you so. He does that so that he can continue to make us holy. And as we spend time in the church, whether it's attending a service like this or whether it's spending time in a, in a growth group through, uh, through discussion and study or, or, or whether it's just in relationship with the people of the church, uh, we, we can uh, have accountability and people can, can speak into our lives and, and we can hear scripture unpacked and, and uh, help, help us to understand again what the standard is. If you're not here, you won't hear what God is saying through the church. Very simple, very basic. You, you might look at that and go, oh yeah, uh, Bible, prayer, and church. That's just the, ba- that, that is the basics. It's, it's uh, kind of like uh, the football coach who brought his, his team in and said, uh, fellas, you're doing awful. Let's start with the basics. This is a football, right? Uh, we've got to get back to the basics of how, how in the world do I even know if a sin is a sin? What is God's standard? Well, I've got to spend time with God and his word. And it's not just about attending a service every once in a while. It's a relationship with God that I'm diving into. And as God unpacks that in my life, he's making me holy. 
Maybe this is a good place to d- differentiate between uh, temptation and sin. Another sub-question I think we need to ask here is, is there a difference between temptation and sin? Uh, the answer is yes, of course there's a difference between temptation and sin. Temptation is not sin. Temptation leads to sin. The, the two go hand in hand if you're not careful, but they're not the same thing. You see, everyone is tempted. James 1, verses 14 and 15 says, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away from their own evil desire, uh, by their own evil desire, and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Everyone is tempted. Temptation leads to sin. Temptation is not sin. Even Jesus was tempted. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So temptation entices us to sin. Temptation makes sin look good, but you don't have to give in to that temptation. It is possible to be human, to be tempted and to not give in, to say no. How do we do that? Well, it starts uh, here where we're transitioning from these questions of temptation, sin, what is sin? We're transitioning into what does it mean to be holy? God helps us to say no to sin and yes to him. The main verse uh, that, uh, that that maybe some of you could uh, could could quote verbatim is from First Corinthians ten thirteen. It says, "No temptation has overtaken you, except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful; He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. It is possible to be tempted and to not sin." All that being said, let's back up just a minute. We all sin. We're born with a bent towards sinning. A couple weeks ago, I told you about my my, my car when I was in college and and the uh, stupid thing I did that bent the uh, axle and the frame and how the car looked great on the surface and I could even drive it kind of sideways, but I could even drive it, and uh, yet yet underneath it had a fatal flaw in that the whole frame was bent and the axle was bent. It's kind of the same picture uh, with, with us, we may, might look good on the surface. We might walk through all the right uh, steps. We might even follow those whole list of, of rules, the do's and don'ts. But, but underneath, we still have this issue of sin. We all sin. And sin has major consequences. Pain, suffering, death. A mother was explaining the importance of making good choices to her five-year-old daughter. And she said, honey, if you don't do what is right, if you sin, you will have to live with the consequences. The girl burst into tears and said, but I don't want to live with the consequences. I want to stay here with you. I don't know the consequences, but um, I hear they're not very nice people. I'm None of us want to live with the consequences of sin, right? Uh, but they're real. Uh, so, so there are consequences to sin. We all sin. We've all, uh, Scripture says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the whole reason that Jesus came, that we needed a Savior. We've all sinned. We, this, there's a break in this relationship. And so God sent Jesus, not only to get us to heaven, but also to make us holy. 
See, let, let, let's review. So God's deepest desire is a relationship. Uh, sin breaks that relationship. There's consequences involved. Uh, God gives his love and, and sent Jesus uh, undeservedly. We don't deserve him, but God sent him anyway. And so when we respond in faith and repentance, we, uh, we, we step into that relationship with him and we have the promise of heaven. And a lot of people kind of stop right there, Right? It's the gospel story. There's nothing wrong with it. That is true uh, in and of itself. God's love and forgiveness, our faith in him, heaven when we die. But there's still more. You see, if we leave it at that, we can get pretty frustrated. God sets up the standard uh, for us to follow, and it's high. Uh, Peter says it, uh, and Peter was quoting the Old Testament from Leviticus over and over and over again. Be holy, God says, because I am holy. I'm holy, you need to be holy. If you're going to be my people, you're going to be holy. God says, be holy, be holy. There's the standard, be holy. And at church, we say, amen, we need to be holy. And when we're away from this place and away from these people, we say, yeah, right, that's kind of impossible. I can't really go there. So we end up consciously or maybe subconsciously dismissing some of God's instructions uh, as these lofty ideals not really possible. And many Christians today live with the notion that they are destined to sin every day and that's just how it is. I can't justify that with this. Our purpose is to be holy, not just to be forgiven. God's desire for your life is not to constantly give in to temptation and sin, but to be an overcomer, to live a holy life. In what Paul called in Philippians, uh, we need to live a holy life in this crooked and depraved generation in which we shine like stars in the universe. Holiness is not an unattainable ideal. It's actually expected of us. Hebrews 12, 14 says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. In Hebrews 13, it says that one of the big reasons Jesus suffered is not just for our forgiveness. It says Jesus suffered to make the people holy through his own blood. It is expected that we not just barely escape the flames of hell when we die, but that we will grow in grace throughout our lives and we're deepening our relationship with God and and he's making us more and more holy and we're living this devoted life. Second Peter chapter one, so Peter's second letter, he tells us how this happens. His divine, God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed by from their past sins. What's the answer to our question? Can I live a holy life? Can I really be holy? It's an emphatic yes, because we have been given everything we need in order to do that. Have you ever been given a task to complete and you didn't have the resources that you needed in order to accomplish it? 
I've been frustrated by that many times. I set in to, uh, to do a project at home maybe and, and I end up making 17 trips to Home Depot in the process and then it still isn't done at the end of the day, right? Uh, okay, maybe seven trips. But still, it's frustrating to try to do something knowing what you need to do but you don't have the resources to do it. Most of the time, those resources are right here in my head, I think, more than, more than having supplies. But whether it's tools or supplies or, or whatever it is, the know-how, we need to have the resources to do it. Having everything you need is fulfilling and empowering. And this says here in 2 Peter chapter 1 that God has given us everything we need to live holy lives. Not only does he call us to live godly lives, he enables us to do it. The secret there is in that relationship, in knowing God. It says the everything we need comes through our knowledge of him. It's the relationship. Uh, Because of that relationship with God, in the process of getting to know him more and more, we discover everything we need for living a holy life. And that says there's power in that relationship. His divine power gives us everything we need as we, in verse 4, it says, as we participate in the divine Nature, that Holy Spirit moves in and his divine nature replaces our sinful human nature that we're born with. And when we give ourselves completely to God, he fills us with his spirit. His divine nature helps us to, as as Peter says there, escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. Makes us holy. That's what we're talking about here. We try to stay on track with God. Evil desires and the evil around us tempt us, drag us down. But God's power through his spirit, through his relationship with him, uh, it gives us everything we need to escape the influences of sin and to be holy. But it's not just zapped into us, right? It's not just automatic. We partner with God to work this out in our lives. If we don't, we could still find ourselves way off base spiritually and, and not even realize it. We don't necessarily choose to sin uh, and, and choose to get distant from God, but by not working at it, we get further from him than we ever thought we would. If you've ever been to the beach, you know what that means, uh, what that's like. You, uh, you have your little stake your claim there on the beach, right? And you got your umbrella and uh, the sandcastle and the toys and the, the uh, chair and all that. And then you go out in the water and you're, you're doing whatever you do out in the water. You're wave surfing or, uh, I don't know, you're playing, right, out in the water. You look up and you can't find the umbrella anywhere, right? Uh, you're either way out to sea or you're way down the coast or whatever the case might be. You've drifted from where you thought you were, because there's always that current working on you. And some days it, it takes you this way and some days it shifts and it's taking you that way. But there's always that, you've always got to be uh, working against the current in order to stay where you need to be. As D.A. Carson says, people do not drift toward holiness. God has given us everything we need to stay afloat, to stay where we need to be in our relationship with him, but it doesn't just happen, it takes work. And so time and attention has to be uh, taken to, as as uh, the middle of that passage says, that we add to our faith. And it says that we're constantly adding attributes like goodness and knowledge and self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection and love. Uh, as, as God's Holy Spirit fills us, his divine nature, all these good attributes fill us too. Peter says it's a partnership. We're adding to it. We're working that out as God provides the possibility for us. We have to work hard and be intentional about being holy. 
I say that, but there's still a danger to hear that and to swing the pendulum to the other side and say, well, as long as I work really hard, then I can be holy. But it's not just about working really hard that you'll never attain it. It's not just about sitting back and letting God zap you into holiness. It's a partnership. His divine power gives us everything we need for living a godly life. It's a partnership. I'm willing and working, but God provides the possibility and the power. Yes, you can really be holy. You've been given everything you need by God himself, but it doesn't just happen. It takes effort. Many good people today think that the Christian life is a life of striving to be good but then inevitably giving in to sin. That doesn't jibe for me with this, and it seems pretty depressing. I think that comes from a smorgasbord Christianity where where we don't necessarily buy into all of this and so, well, I'm just going to be somewhere in between here. But Jesus didn't die on the cross and rise from the dead so that you could just barely slide into heaven. He has given you everything you need for living a a godly, holy life, even right now. I I, want to end with a a metaphor that I'm sure I've shared with you before. I think it so appropriately describes how this life with God works. It says this, At first I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of the things I did wrong, so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I die. He was out there, sort of like a president. I recognized his picture when I saw it, but I really didn't know him. Later on, when I met Christ, it seemed as though life were rather like a bike ride, but it was a tandem bike, and I noticed that Christ was in the back helping me pedal. I don't know just when it was that he suggested we change places. But life has not been the same since. When I had control, I knew the way. It was rather boring, but predictable. It was the shortest distance between two points. But when he took the lead, he knew delightful long cuts up mountains and through rocky places at breakneck speeds. And it was all I could do to hang on. And even though it looked like madness, he said, pedal. I worried I was anxious. I worried and was anxious and asked, where are you taking me? And he just laughed and didn't answer. And I started to learn to trust. I forgot my boring life and entered into the adventure. And when I'd say, I'm scared, he'd lean back and touch my hand. I did not trust him at first in control of my life. I thought he'd wreck it. But he knows bike secrets. (laughs) He knows how to make it bend to take sharp corners. Uh, He knows jumps to clear high rocks. He knows how to fly to shorten scary passages. And I am learning to shut up and pedal in the strangest places. And I'm beginning to enjoy the cool breeze on my face with my delightful, constant companion, Christ. And when I'm sure I just can't do any more, he smiles and says, pedal. Yes, you can be holy. It takes God's power. It takes our faithfulness and diligence. And the partnership of those two things is everything we need for living a godly life. Father God, we love you today. We thank you for your word and how it speaks to us. Lord, I pray that you will help us to let you lead in our lives 
that we would recognize that your power and our relationship with you gives us everything we need to live holy lives. Lord, I, I pray that you'll help us to do what we need to do to find out those, those places where, where, where we need to let you have more control in our lives. Uh, uh, find out those things that we're doing or saying or thinking or being that, are, that, that don't live up to your standards. Lord, I, I pray that you'll give us the desire to know you more and more. Lord, we thank you for the possibility and the power to follow after you. Help us, Lord, to shut up and pedal. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for what you have done in our lives. I thank you for uh, your spirit speaking to us even this morning. And I pray that as we go from here, we would go rejoicing in your love and your grace and your faithfulness, knowing that your spirit leads the way. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.